Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. She starred in over 70 films, but Susan Sarandon says she never purposely wanted to be an actress. Can you imagine anyone else in such iconic roles as Annie in Bull Durham, Louise in Thelma and Louise, and Sister Helen, Dead Man Walking? She took home the Oscar for that one. The oldest of nine children, Susan Sarandon, was raised in a Catholic household, and even then she questioned authority. As you'll hear, Susan is very open about her life, about becoming pregnant after doctors told her she wouldn't be able to have children, about aging in a business that is really tough on women past a certain age, and why she believes relationships need to evolve, even if that means parting ways. Now a mother of three, Susan remains one of Hollywood's most talented and versatile leading ladies. Yet she credits her success to the fact that all her plans failed. Everybody has a story, and there is something to be learned from every experience. Use your life as a class. This is Masterclass with Susan Sarandon. I never studied acting. I never wanted to be an actor. The first thing I remember ever wanting to be was a wave in the ocean, so I don't understand what I was thinking when I thought that. But I never imagined myself in show business. I did some parts in school plays like everybody did. I probably was horrible. And then my choice of colleges got limited by my finances, and I went to live with my grandparents in D.C., and I went to the Catholic University. And I had to work my way through college, so I worked on the switchboard in the drama department. But at one point, they did put me as a lady-in-waiting in some Shakespearean something, so I walked across the stage. And there was a reaction when I did that, and I thought that was kind of interesting. But then I met, and my senior year married Chris Sarandon, who was five years, six years older than I was, and a graduate student. He was a real actor. He was doing all the leads in the Shakespeare. He was, you know, at arena stage, and I was a freshman, 17-year-old freshman. And he kind of introduced me to black and white movies and poetry, and he knew everything as far as I was concerned. But he was at the Long Wharf Theater doing a play, and someone saw him, and they said, why don't you come in and audition for it was a film called Joe, and they'd been trying to cast it forever. And so he needed someone to read with him, and I read with him. And they said, well, why don't you both come back? 
they asked me to do an improv. I asked them what that was. I did it, and they told me to wait a minute. They came back in, and they said, all right, we want you to do this. And I said, well, this is really funny. It was pretty interesting. I did my own makeup. They used my own wardrobe. I had a scene in it in which I had one take. I was on some drug that made me violent and put lipstick all over my face. We were filming on 14th Street in one of those cheap kind of stores, and I got to trash the place until they tackled me and threw me down. And I thought, well, this is so much fun. I mean, it was so liberating just to be that person. It went from being this kind of mediocre generation gap story into the easy rider of that year, and it became a huge hit. And then the next thing I went up for was a soap opera, and I got that. That was called A World Apart. And I just kept getting things. And little by little, I learned. And after about 10 years, I thought, I guess this is what I do. When Chris and I married, I thought, well, we'll just renew every year. We won't say it's forever, but we'll decide every year if we want to be together. And that's what we did. For seven years, we were together. And then we separated, and then eventually we divorced. And I never married again after that. I've learned that relationships are like an organism. I mean, they have to keep changing, that there's no such thing as getting them to a certain point and trying to just shore that up and hold on to that, that really your life and your relationship has to be a breathing, constantly changing, reevaluating, challenging thing. You know, especially if you're with somebody for a long time, you have to keep touching base. And I think that the best fun of a relationship is when you're on an equal playing field and you're not afraid to, to make your needs known, whatever they are, and give the other person the option to deal with what those needs are. Then you can adapt. Then you can come up with different game plans because who you are at 40 is not who you are at 20. And so if there are different people in your lives at different times of your development, if you know, you've learned something from being with somebody for seven or eight years and for whatever reason you go separate ways, you've accumulated and you're a different person. And then after you've crashed and burned a few times, you start to understand that it's a lot more complicated than that in some ways. But knowing where your moral bottom line, where that shifts to, is really important and that you be on the same page with whoever that partner is. And, the, you know, the rest of it's just details. Age, gender, color, what, you know, that's just details. But iron out who takes out the garbage. Really talk about some of the stuff that people just don't talk about, that they're either afraid to talk about or don't know enough to talk about, to have these conversations. Because sometimes you find out too late that you... You know, you were really completely on some major issues, non-negotiable things in different places. And I think that you have to be ready to be by yourself and like being by yourself. Or you can't really say what you need fearlessly. Anytime you're making any kind of an agreement out of fear, it's not going to work. And what you have to try to do is be as authentic in your life as you can and as truthful as you can, and it'll be joyful if, if you can find that place. You can't always stay there, but it's a good goal. I've been discovered at least four times, I think, in different parts. You know, went from 
wide-eyed girl to kind of comedy and then did something serious and then went back to comedy and then was a nun and then was a hooker. A lot of the parts I got were because either they couldn't find somebody or somebody wasn't available. And in this one, Ron Shelton was a new director. He'd written this magnificent script that just debunked every cliche about sports and women, and clearly he loved women, and clearly he had played baseball, and uh, was such a love letter to the sport. But the women that they wanted, the women that the studio wanted, refused to read. And I was living in Italy, and I got this script, and they said, you know, maybe you want to go up for it. They won't fly you. They don't want you. But <laughs> if you'll fly yourself, we can get you an audition because all the other people who shall remain nameless don't want to read, won't read for it. They want to be offered the part without reading. And Ron really feels that Kevin, he has to see the people together, which I think is a legitimate request. And anyway, the script was so good. But I was definitely fairly insulted that I had to fly myself. At, you know, it cost a lot of money. And I did that. I put on a tight, I still remember, a red and white striped dress, got on the plane, got off the plane, went directly to the interview, read the entire script, made a little mini stop with the studio executives who all looked like babies. I remember thinking, this is really the person that's deciding this. And got back on the plane and went to Rome, drove to Circeo where I was living, and sure enough, like the next day, the neighbor came knocking on the door to tell me that I had a phone call and I had to go over and then pack everybody up and, and I had, had gotten it. That was a life changer also, not just because of having two Bull Durham babies, but also just what it did in terms of restoring my faith in team playing. It was really a fun shoot and it was so empowering to play a woman that was smart and sexual and didn't have to die at the end of the movie because of it. My dad was a big band singer before the war and after the war, knocked my mom up, and that was the end of that dream. So he went into something more stable, which was the early days of television. And uh, we lived in a little apartment in Jackson Heights until I think there were three or four of us, and then we moved to a little house in New Jersey where my dad then commuted into the city. And so I went to a Catholic grammar school in town that was populated by maybe a dozen families, all who had a minimum of eight or nine children. I was the oldest of nine. And at that time, before I went to public high school, I was very concerned because the nuns told us that the communists were going to come over and test our faith and hang us upside down on crucifixes. and. So I prayed constantly to have enough faith to stand up to the communists. I was a very quiet kid, a very wanting to please kid, but certain things didn't make sense to me, and when I questioned, there was a problem. I remember them telling me you couldn't be married unless you were married in the Catholic Church, and I asked how then Joseph and Mary were married since Jesus didn't make it up till later, and I had to go stand in the hallway, and that's when the trouble began when I was in, like, third grade. I was told I had an overabundance of original sin, but I was not trying to be a wise-ass. I just didn't understand why they would put babies in limbo just because they weren't baptized. It just didn't... 
or why they would say every other religion was bad, you know. It just didn't make sense to me. But I was going over during my lunch hour and making visits to church to pray to be a good person while everyone else was making out in the confessionals. This quest for being a good person and being a spiritual person has carried over into my life. I think that all religions at their core have some really magnificent teachings, and most of them are very similar. It's the institutionalization of these religious principles that don't serve me well. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. I believe that certain people and things come into your life for a purpose. Certain things almost feel inevitable. Certain love stories feel inevitable. Certain people or occasions or just you know that that was meant to be in a way. When I was doing The Hunger, I had an episode and was hospitalized, and they came up and told me that I had endometriosis, and if I ever wanted to have children that I would need to be operated on, and I wasn't devastated. I thought, well, there's nobody in my life right now anyway I want to have a kid with. So for years, I didn't use birth control, and I went to Italy to do a movie about Mussolini with Anthony Hopkins, and I started seeing this young guy that I, he was Italian and spoke great English and was gorgeous and nice guy and loved his family, loved Italy. I finally got a chance to embrace my Italian side, which was why I decided to do the movie because it was going all over the Italy. And I was going to learn Italian and everything. And I had been praying, actually praying, because there's so many great churches in Italy, to find some more meaning in my life, because at this point I felt really overqualified for my career. I was working, but it wasn't enough. And I felt this disconnect, and I was 38, and nobody understood how this happened, but I found myself pregnant. Everyone's telling me, you are crazy, you know, your career's going so well, and you can't have a baby now, and what are you gonna do? And you'd barely know this guy, and I'd barely knew this guy, and, and I just thought, you know what, this is something I'm not overqualified for. This is going to be really an interesting thing. And I thought, yeah, and so I said to Franco, you know, I've decided that I'm going to have this baby, and if you want to be part of it, that's great. If you don't, that's great too. Because I thought, you know what, if, if this was an impossibility and it's happened, clearly it's meant to happen and let's just go for it. And the rest is history, and I never had any regrets. As I started to get older, I just realized that it's your imperfections that make you who you are. If everybody gets rid of everything about themselves that's not symmetrical, you just look like everybody else. Unfortunately, you're so punished in this business uh, I mean, when people say, do you think you lost work because your politics, I say, no, you lose work because you get old and fat. That's when they write you off in Hollywood. They're really not political one way or another. And I, you know, I was with a 
a lot of women who, young girls, who then had to make the transition to leading lady, who then had to make the transition, and a lot of them couldn't transition. Same with men, I mean, or boys. It's hard to grow up on screen. There's the inevitability of the deterioration of the physical that forces you to think really what is beauty and what, what survives. And the people that I think are really beautiful have something in their eyes and have something in their demeanor that that invites you in. I have nothing against people doing things that make them feel better about themselves. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, at some point you have to shift to really wondering what kind of person you are. It's who you become by being authentic and truthful and generous. I mean, I think empathy and, and generosity are very, are very attractive qualities that somehow do attract people and who that make you a beautiful person whether you're a man or, or a woman and you really you want to look healthy you want to look happy people that are joyful are more attractive so work on that because the other thing is a losing battle if you're trying to still look 22 you're going to be so disappointed after meeting on the set of bull durham susan and tim robbins began a long romance they had two children Jack and Miles, and became Hollywood's outspoken it couple. They were together 23 years. Before their breakup, they famously collaborated on the 1996 film, Dead Man Walking. I love that one. Susan starred, and Tim wrote the script and directed. Susan won the Oscar for her role as Sister Helen, a real-life nun who counseled inmates on death row. Oh, I remember meeting Sister Helen quite vividly. I was doing The Client when I got a hold of the book, and I contacted her, and we decided to meet. And she just gave me the book on a handshake, and I said I would try my best to figure out the best way to do it. And we talked about, I thought it was a story about love, unconditional love, and I feel that every movie that I do, every story that I tell is a love story. That's what I'm drawn to. So even though the backdrop of it was about the death penalty and forgiveness, and it was really at its heart a love story. So I went back, and Tim was trying to do a different film, and he didn't find time to read it. And then I started getting impatient. Months passed, and months passed, and a year. And then I had kind of a little mini breakdown and said, you know, if you're not going to do this, I'm going to give it to somebody else. And... You know, I'm turning down all these parts, and I really feel like this story needs to be told now. There's just something that I feel has to be told now. And so then he read the book and started to get into his imagination. The story of Dead Man Walking starts off, and it was very important that it started off with just a little visit. And then little by little, she gets more and more involved, and she kind of had all these doubts. And that's what I really liked about her was that she didn't go into the whole situation a hero. She just got sucked in deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more she knew, the more she got involved. It's such an irrational thing when you're involved in a situation that involves the state killing someone because it's a premeditated murder and you just can't get your head around it. And so the idea was to take the combination of the worst possible person who is guilty and kill him the most humane way. The people that she sat with in her book were electrocuted, but Tim very brilliantly changed it to 
lethal injection because everyone thinks that's so humane. I remember when we had the first edit and we invited her to see it and I thought, oh my God, I hope she's, you know, is this going to be so hard for her? And I was kind of worried about her emotionally and to have to go through that again. And when it was over, I said, are you all right? And she said, well, actually doing it was much harder. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, oh, the me. This is only a movie, but it was a difficult movie. By the time I finished it, I knew the death penalty was wrong for so many reasons. I'd met so many people who'd forgiven the murder of their children because you can't move on without that forgiveness. You know, you just, in the memory of their child, they said, I, I'm not going to hate. Not that I think it's all right, but I'm not going to hate. Sister Helen is a great example of a religious person who is all about loving the way Christ loved and not asking if someone's guilty or not, but because a person is bigger than their worst act. Forgiveness is huge. You know when you have resentment how horrible that feels. You know when you feel jealous. You know when you're angry. You know when you have no way to get rid of that, how crippling and how debilitating that is. So if you live a life that's dedicated to revenge, that's just dedicated to holding on to that, you can't move forward. You just It's an impossible thing. You can't move forward. And so sometimes when you're feeling vulnerable, when you're feeling hurt, the easiest thing to do is to spring to anger because it feels so active. And I'm a person who, like, if you mess with my kids or one of my friends, it, it's hard. I, I do hold a grudge. I sometimes hold grudges longer than the person who's actually been <laughs> wronged. So it's been something that I've had to, to really work at and be aware of. And to forgive does not mean that you say it's all right. It's something that you have to just make the decision, and every day you get up, it's a struggle, and you just dedicate yourself. It's a muscle. It's something that you have to make the decision and use. A person that I'm really inspired by is my friend Somali Mom, who was a sex worker sold into sex trafficking when she was, I think, 10 and, and is in Cambodia and rescues girls. One of the things when I was over there that just, I probably cry now when I talk about it, the most horrible thing that these girls talk about, even ones that have been maimed and, and, and are sick and have been raped repeatedly, repeatedly, sometimes as young as six, even though they tell horror stories about what happened to them, the one thing that breaks their heart that just kills them is that their mothers either handed them over or wouldn't believe that their stepfathers were raping them, and so that's why they ran away or they sold them, wouldn't take them back once they managed to... And that is the, the thing th that just kills them, just destroys their soul. And Somali says, you have to forgive your mother or you can't move on. And when I heard that, it just killed me. I think that one of the things that happens when you have kids is that everyone says they bring life into you. I never thought about death until I had children. I just never thought about my mortality. I never thought about the dangers of being on location by myself in a house with my kids, trying to figure out what exit I would go to if there was a fire. I mean, I became so much more aware of mortality once I had children. That was a huge thing. I really thought about wanting to stay alive long enough for them to be older, which I'd never thought about, and, and just about their fragility and, you know, how little 
control over life you really have where your kids are concerned. And I think I, I, I think I became even more dedicated to, to justice and things that were right and children's issues and women's issues. It's just everything resonated even more with me when you, you know, you can't not be interested in sex trafficking when you have a child. You look at your little girl and you think this, a four-year-old, they're, they're actually selling children and how widespread it is and all of these things just become much more horrific, certainly, than even because it doesn't just exist in your imagination. It ex you know, and you, you say, you know, how can I be for this war if I'm not sending my child? Why should another mother send her child? It just makes it so much simpler. That's the bottom line. I'm not ready to give my kid up for this war, though nobody else should give their kid up. You know, your priorities are just so clear. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Isa wherever you get your podcasts. Part of being a citizen, part of being a patriot is to participate in your government. When I was in school, the end of the 60s, beginning of the 70s, it was just part of being young. If you were awake at all, you went to the streets. It didn't seem like such a big deal. But when it becomes a big deal is when your name means something. If you're someone that doesn't have a voice, how are you supposed to tell people about what's going on, you know? So that's when celebrities are necessary. And I think it just kind of got a hold of me. I, I'm very aware of the people like me and hold me to a certain standard and are invested in my life and go to see my movies and because they expect something. I mean, they've made that really clear to me through all, I mean, God, it's been over 40 years. and. You know, once you step out from the line, then everybody gives you information. Once they know that you'll listen, everybody comes to you to educate you. So in the early days of, of AIDS, I had so many gay friends who were sick, we didn't even know what was going on. But when I would do a junket, I would go to the, I would talk to the doctors that were at the forefront of that. And I would ask them, what is it that, you know, needs to be said? Just give me two sentences and I'll try to get that into my junkets. And for instance, HIV, they used to be AIDS victims. And then they said, don't say AIDS victims. Let's try to say people living with AIDS because it can't be a death sentence. And so then you start to say that. So pretty soon, because you're in the media, people living with AIDS becomes the phrase. And that's where we come in handy, not to tell people how to think, but just to shine a little light on something that educates people or some piece of information that they don't have. You can't worry about what people are going to think or how you let them down or if you don't act like they need you to act. I think that's part of what being a celebrity carries with it. And when people get an opportunity to see these abstract concepts as people, they totally open their hearts and they, they want to help and you don't have to push them. It's just a question of giving them the opportunity to see things differently. It's not that I'm particularly courageous for sure, not at all. 
I'm not somebody who even likes to speak. But unfortunately, that's just the way it is. So sometimes this idea of, of having to, to be public and in front of a lot of people and talking, you just have to bite the bullet and do it. So when I have to get up in front of a mic, and especially if it's something that's controversial, when nobody else will do it, that's usually when I have to do it. And it's not a comfortable thing for me at all. It's not a comfortable thing. And I guess you just live with the idea that if you don't take advantage of the situation to get information out about something that's important, then how do you live with yourself afterwards? Because I've found that in my life, it's always the things that I didn't do that I regret. The things that I do, and if it's a mistake, you can apologize and you can get over it and say, well, at the time, you know, it seemed like the best thing to do. But when you don't do something that you know in your heart you should, it's, it haunts you forever. Rejection is just a way of life if you're an actor, and especially, well, even now. And so what I would do even in the beginning when I had no money, I would make sure that if I... I was going up for something over and over again, and then it got down to me and someone else. And I tell my daughter this because she goes through the same thing. You know, when you don't get it, I would celebrate. I would go out and buy myself dinner or an album if I could afford it, or an avocado or whatever my, my limits economically were, and just celebrate it and think, well, it means that I'm now available for something else. But I would celebrate and say, well, that's what's supposed, you know, that's what's supposed to happen. That's okay. And, and actually, the more rejection you get, you kind of start to just get into a life without expectations. And that's when things really surprise you and come your way all the time. The minute you stop looking for love, you find it. I mean, it's, you know, the minute you're trying not to get pregnant, you get pregnant. Once you give up on having a baby, it happens. That's a weird little sense of humor that life has, but it always happens. As the oldest of nine, I was definitely taught how to nurture, and it came pretty easily to me. I always had a kid on my hip. I felt very comfortable with babies, and I knew how that worked, and I wasn't eager to have kids because I knew how that worked. I wasn't romanticizing the whole parental thing. But it gave me more problems with my relationships with men because I was so good at loving and doing things for people that I had to really figure out how to draw the line sometimes and let men be men and not boys, you know. I think competent women have a hard time sometimes asking for things. And when people see that you can take care of yourself, and I was trained to take care of myself, they don't think. And then it becomes difficult for me sometimes to ask for help and ask for a hug and ask for attention and things like that because I was really used to not getting it, and I was fine, seemingly. So it, it most uh, was a problem in trying to figure out my relationships with men. I think my kids are my greatest teachers. They're making me reread everything that I read a long time ago. They're questioning things and trying to figure things out that I had the answers for but had forgotten the questions. And so the, the roles have definitely shifted. I mean, when you raise kids to question authority, you're the first one that they go after for sure. And they keep me honest and they, you know, they tell me when I'm not being honest, true to myself. And it's been interesting because now I have the opportunity to get to know them as people. 
so I'm seeing my daughter as a married woman, and I'm seeing my sons as men, and they now have to see me as something other than their mother, and that's really weird. You know, I was pretty quiet about my career. I mean, for the longest time, my daughter thought I just worked in a trailer. I mean, they didn't, you know, it was never a big deal. They grew up in New York. They weren't in Hollywood. They weren't in show business. And they're starting to understand who I was before they intruded on my life. Every now and then they'll say, yeah, you're pretty cool, Mom. Actually, you're pretty cool. <laughs> I always wished that I'd been Jewish so that I could have a bar mitzvah for my kids because I love the fact that everybody comes forward and says things and talks about them. And, you know, they light the candles and the whole thing. In the Catholic Church, it's your confirmation, but it's not as cool. And so... I said, we're going to do a rites of passage, but part of the rites of passage of going into manhood, like every tribe does something, and they were like, oh, no, don't have people coming forward and talk about us. That's so embarrassing. Don't do that. Don't do that. And I said, oh, okay. All right. So, But what you have to do is you have to pick some kind of community service, and we'll invite your friends and my friends, and we'll celebrate you by doing that, and then you'll also get a party, and I'll ask everybody that's been something in your life to write something to you, and I want you to write a letter to yourself that I don't have to see that's in a sealed envelope, and I'm trusting that they wrote it because I gave them the paper and the envelope, and they gave it back, but I have not looked at it. And so they have this book, this rite of passage that they have that marks kind of going into adulthood that has those elements in it. I have had the pleasure of interviewing Susan many times over the years, and I'm always just kind of wowed by her. She is a talent and a delight. She tells us to choose work that makes you happy, understand that relationships have their flow and their season. Hmm, that's important to know. And that it's our imperfections that make us truly who we are. With her many projects, her passions and tireless efforts for human rights, we know that whatever Susan Sarandon chooses to do next, it's bound to make the world a better place. Like the wave on the ocean Susan dreamed of becoming as a child, she has indeed become a force of nature herself. And that is why she is a master. I think when you are going through life, you have to be open about your framing of what you want. I mean, in a way, I'm here because all my plans failed. And I say that kiddingly, but it's true. I think that the thing that has served me the best has been flexibility and being able to adapt and to have an idea of going somewhere. But when something crosses my path, having the ability and the sense to go, oh, you know, maybe... Actually, that's a better direction. And I think you have to listen to your heart and not think that there's a rational way to plan out your life because life isn't rational. It's not, you can never be safe. You can never be sure in love and life and your profession. I mean, how ironic is it that I would end up in a stable profession compared to all these people that didn't do what they thought because they wanted a guarantee and then they got outsourced and then they got fired. I, I tell kids when they ask me, you know, find something that you really love and then you'll be really good at it. And if you're having fun, that's the big challenge. But 
you know, I hope that my life constantly surprises me as much as it has for the last 66 years because I think that if you're too sure of everything, that it's death. What's been great about my life has been that I haven't seen any of it coming. The fact that I'm running a ping pong franchise, I mean, seriously, I don't even play ping pong really well. And now, you know, we're working on our fifth club. It's crazy. I've just been really lucky to have so many things and people cross my path and made me take myself less seriously. Life ebbs and flows, and as it does, it presents new things to you. And the stuff that hasn't worked out has always taught me something. So I think it's failures such that I can't even think of something that would be a failure, really. A failure. No. <laughs> I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Masterclass, the podcast. You can follow Masterclass on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't already, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Masterclass podcast. Have you ever wondered what the stars have to say about your favorite artists and writers? Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa, where I, your host and astrologer, Issa Nakazawa, read and interpret astrological birth charts of luminaries like W. Kamau Bell, Gia Tolentino, and so many more. You'll discover how astrology can unlock fascinating insights about these stars. And who knows, maybe you'll learn a little bit more about yourself. Listen to Stars and Stars with Issa wherever you get your podcasts. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.